This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Man, what a um, what a remarkably uh, ridiculous day today. I got to tell you, there were three stories that came up today that really make you wonder what is going on in the world. Like, I, I, I hard to wrap your head around some of this stuff. First up, and this one seems this one angers me to be honest with you. Um, because there are so many people who are slugging away, slogging away in broadcasting schools, in journalism schools, working, thinking, you know what, if I put in two or three years and then I go and work at some 20 watt radio station in East Boogaloo somewhere in the two to 3 AM shift, maybe someday I'll get an opportunity in the business. And you may have heard from last year's playoffs. Remember that guy that painted his face and had his blue beard? He, they, they referred to him as Dart Guy. He first showed up when the Leafs played against the Washington Capitals and he had a cigarette, so they got, he got called Dart Guy, and he turned into a meme. People were posting his photo on social media and pointing this out. Now, Dart Guy, I don't know what he does for a living. I know it's not broadcast, but suddenly Dart Guy... On another competing, I'll grant you, and this is not a competition thing, this is just an angering thing, on a competing radio station in the Toronto market has now been given a two-hour radio show for being dart guy. I mean, if I'm someone who's working, trying to get started in the business, I am, this is enraging. I'm sure a guy like Ben, who's through the other side of the glass, who's working his way, he's, you know, he's putting in his hours, he's putting in his time, he's doing a good job, and somebody who paints his face with a Maple Leaf logo and dyes his beard, that's his qualifications to get a talk show. Seems kind of enraging to me as someone in the business. But anyway, somebody, some producer, some person at some radio station thought this was a great idea. I hope it fails so miserably that the boss who hired this guy gets fired because it's so enraging to people who are actually working. And I mean, imagine at your job that you are working to move up in your career, that you're trying to get ahead and somebody who, for whatever reason, the boss has decided, Hey, I saw this guy standing at a bus stop. I think I'll give him the promotion and give him the best job in the place. That's see, that's what it all is. Anyway, that was first today gets you going. Then I read this story, which at first I thought was a joke. I'll be honest with you. I thought this was a joke. I thought there's no way this is actually true. That the Toronto District School Board, when referring to people who have the word chief, chief financial officer, chief executive officer, chief operating officer, whatever. Anybody who's got the word chief in their name, in their title, is being removed out of respect and deference to indigenous people because somehow calling someone a chief executive officer is termed offensive to indigenous peoples. I don't think there's an indigenous person out there, honestly, who was looking at that saying, yeah, that's the problem. That's the thing that's holding us back and causing us issues in our life. The fact that someone on their nameplate is called chief executive officer. Someone confused that and thinks that's what's keeping the indigenous community in a in tough straits. Come on. How crazily over the top politically correct can this country possibly get in places? Honestly. In case the people at the Toronto District School Board, who I would like to have believed since they're in education, were a little smarter than this, since they can't figure it out themselves, perhaps they need someone to point out that 
chief was not a word that was indigenous, that was taken by others and ruined. If you look up the definition of, definition of the word chief, it means most important. The person with the highest rank in an organization. It was an English word, and in fact, it comes from uh, Middle English and Old French. Chief or chef comes from the Latin caput, meaning head. It was an English word that was applied because we didn't have, I guess we didn't have another word, to the person who was the leader of a band or a tribe or whatever at once upon a time. But now it's an offensive word. If we refer to someone as a chief executive officer, I'm being offensive? I don't think so. Anyway, that was that was number two. But where I really want to go today, I want to hear from you on this one because number three, man, if you, th- if you hadn't already been convinced that the world was going goofy today, I don't know what's going on. Is it a full moon or something? I, I, I have no idea. But this story that came out mid-morning or early afternoon, I don't know exactly when it came out, but the Boy Scouts of America has determined unanimously, its board unanimously has determined that it should now be including girls into the Boy Scouts. Interesting idea. Since it's the Boy Scouts. And since there is the Girl Guides. So we're not talking about a, a, a an area of life, an activity where girls are being left out, where there's no option for girls. There are the Girl Guides. And believe me, uh, I'm not the only one thinking this is nuts, the girl guides are outraged by this because they are pointing out, look, what's, what are we? We're here. We're providing these opportunities for girls. And the Boy Scouts are now saying, no, no, we have to let all girls in to be part of the Boy Scouts. What do you think about this? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think, but what do you think? I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221 or star nine nine zero zero. What do you think about the idea that apparently we need to have, we, there can be nothing anywhere where boys can just be apparently playing with boys and l- being silly and being stupid and being young boys and girls can't do stuff. Well, that's not true actually, because boys are not also being admitted into the girl guides. Boys can't go into the brownies. I don't know if they'd want to, but Boys are not being permitted the same access, but girls, for some reason, and it's not really clear why, apparently some girls have expressed an interest in doing this. Well, what do you think about this? Because I'm looking at this saying, I can wrap my head around the concept. If you're a girl who is athletic, let's say, and your high school does not provide a girls football team, but you want to play football, I can, I can follow the logic that would say then, since we don't offer that for you, you may then try out for the football team. I, I, can, I can grasp that part of it and say, okay, you know what? Sure, that, that, that's okay. That, that makes some sense. Although, again, a boy who wants to play field hockey on the girls team because they don't offer boys field hockey is not allowed to do the same. But I can get it if a girl wants to play on a team where there is nothing offered equally. But when you have, for example, girls hockey, the idea that we should have girls playing on boys teams 
here's the problem I have with that. It's not that I believe that girls are sugar and spice and everything nice and we're going to get them banged up and it's not girly to play on a boy's... Not, that's not it at all. The problem I have with it is if boys can't go and play on a girl's team, but a girl comes and plays on a boy's rep team, for example, that is taking a spot that a boy can't, as I say, reciprocate by then saying, okay, a girl from this team came and played on my team, so I'm going to go take her place if I wanted to on the girl's team. It, it's, it's not a... If there are opportunities like girl guides, like girls hockey, like girls basketball, girls whatever, I, I don't know. I'd love, to, I'd love to hear from anybody. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. I looked at this today and I thought, just ridiculous. Just ridiculous. That we're at this point now where there can be no delineation. And and again, we're not talking, I want to be clear, we're not talking about going through life separated. We're not talking about the op- that, that there can, that we want to have people grow up without having any kind of interaction with the other gender, that we want to have segregation all the way along permanently. It's, it's. It's the Boy Scouts. It's designed and always has been a boys organization as girls has been a girls organization. I just don't see the need to break down the doors and say, yeah, that's not good enough anymore. We have to have it as co-ed. Does does everything need to be co-ed? Is there no benefit? And, And studies have shown with education, for example, that there are some benefits to having boys with boys and girls with girls. They have found that those, not everywhere, but there are places where that is beneficial to the people involved. I'll give you a perfect example. I don't know how many places there still are in this city. I'm not sure. I haven't looked up the number. But there are women's only fitness clubs in this city and in just about every other city. And why do those women's only fitness clubs exist? Well, many years ago, me being a little bit sarcastic on this one, this was back when the whole Augusta National thing was going on with women not being allowed to play or be members where the Masters is played. Uh, I called around to see, okay, could I join one of your women's only fitness clubs, knowing the answer ahead of time. But the answer, and I thought it actually makes sense, the answer of why guys couldn't join is, Women are able to be themselves. This was the answer I was given. Women are able to be themselves. They're, they can be self-conscious if they are working out and guys are there and if they feel they're being looked at or being watched or being judged. And you want to know something? There is something to that. I have no doubt that there's something to that, which makes it, you look back, you, you look around and you say, I can see that that would be beneficial and therefore to have a women's only fitness club makes sense. If you want to be in the co-ed segment, you can be in the co-ed segment. If you want to be in the women's only fitness club, you can be in the women's only fitness club. Now, it doesn't seem to work the other way for whatever reason. And I got to believe that quite honestly, while many guys might not have the same Concerns, I suppose. I suppose that's what they're saying. I can tell you that there are guys who are self-conscious about their body, who go to the fitness club because they want to get in shape and would prefer not to be 
looked at or judged too, but we don't, that's not the same thing. But I'm, again, this, this, this one today where we've decided that the Boy Scouts for how many years, when did the Boy Scouts start? I don't even know. Uh, it's 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 no longer good enough, and it's it now has to be co-ed. I just I don't understand it. I really I don't understand it. I don't see the benefit to it. I don't see the the propriety. I, I, there's a lot that I just it doesn't make a lot of sense. If there were no girl guides, if there were no brownies, if there were no whatever else, if there were no options for the kind of activities that you're talking about, then yes, we can wrap our head around that. But there are. And, and what is this going to do potentially? Now, I don't know if it will, but the girl guides are saying, you're going to kill us. You're not, you're going to water down and diminish the Boy Scouts, which could do damage to it. And you're going to now destroy potentially the girl guides because possibly girls are going to want to leave. If they've got boys, if the family has boys who are in the Boy Scouts, oh, it's a lot easier just to take our daughter there too and sign her up for that rather than doing two different places. It's, you know, it's more convenient. So the girl guides are not happy about this. Uh, the, the truth behind this in all likelihood has very little to do with being forward thinking and has very little to do with trying to break down doors or anything else. Uh, the truth about this is that the Boy Scouts of America's membership has been declining for years, 1972, there were 6.5 million members of the Boy Scouts of America. In 2016, 60% fewer, 2.3 million members. Truth is, if you want to know why, in all likelihood, they've decided to admit women, girls, pardon me, there's your answer. Let's bump up the membership again. Let's see if we can find a new clientele that will come. If we kill the girl guides in the process, hey, no worries. That's okay. We're not worried about that. I just, I just, I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't know why this is a good thing. Radley at 900chml.com. If you had heard about this today or have some thoughts on this today, i I just don't believe that it is necessarily always a bad thing to have activities for boys and activities for girls. Not always, not every facet of your life. I'm not suggesting that you go through your entire childhood segregated by gender. Not at all, not remotely. I don't think it's necessarily evil or bad or misguided or anything else to have some activities that are for boys and some activities that are for girls. And this has been one of them for decades, for probably over, well, it is for over a century, but we know better now. All those people, all those people for decades, oh, they were fools. We know better now. We'll show you. We'll see. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You may or may not be a huge soccer fan. Many of you are, many of you aren't. But I know when all of you, when all of us, do become soccer fans, that's in the World Cup. When the World Cup is on, suddenly we all pay some attention, we all are aware of the games. Even if we're not giant soccer fans, it becomes something because it's a big international event. It's the biggest international event, actually, bigger than the Olympics in scope. But last night, the United States was playing against Trinidad and Tobago. Probably unfair that it had to play against both Trinidad and Tobago at the same time. 
nonetheless. Uh, playing against Trinidad and Tobago and lost 2-1. to one. The United States lost to Trinidad and Tobago. And this was hugely significant, not just because the massive United States was beaten 2-1 to one by tiny Trinidad and Tobago. It's huge because this loss eliminated the United States from the 2018 World Cup that will be held in Russia. The United States somehow will not be in this event. It's the first time since 1986, which interestingly enough was the last time Canada was in 1986, that the states will not be playing in this. Uh, When we have a soccer story, there's only one person we ever turn to because he is the guy who is uh, our local resident expert, Hall of Famer, He's played on the in the Olympics. He has played professionally. Uh, his name is John McGrain. He joins me now. John, how are you tonight? I'm, I'm actually terrific. Uh, thanks for asking, Scott. How in the world can a country like the United States, coming out of a region <clears throat> that seems to be very forgiving, how in the world can the United States not end up in the World Cup? Well, for if you can look at what the United States has done over the last 30 years in sports, you could obviously say that the, the pinnacle of what they've done was Miracle on Ice beating the, the Soviet Union. And if you take it to the other side of the pendulum, what's the worst thing that's ever happened? It happened last night. Uh, it was a shocker. I mean, CONCACAF has been designed. Uh, the finals, the top six who are in the CONCACAF uh, playoffs, is designed for most of the top teams to qualify. I mean, the top three qualify, then the I think the fourth does a playoff against Australia or something like that. But an opportunity to, to qualify and to lose again against uh, what I call Trinidad and Tabasco, uh, it uh, was a huge, uh, a huge monument, monumental uh, defeat and one that will, uh, will be hard to get the taste out of the mouth. Well, and as you say, this is, I don't want to, it's not rigged. There's nothing about being rigged, but this is designed the way that the World Cup setup is to make sure that most of the biggest countries and the biggest soccer powers are going to be in the World Cup when it comes around, correct? They, they, the, uh, FIFA doesn't want to have a bunch of no-name countries. They want the big star countries in their tournament. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I mean, if they could guarantee somehow China to be in the World Cup, mm. uh, they'd be the happiest people in the world. If they could get India uh, to be in the World Cup, that would be fantastic because it's all about, you know, selling their product to the the, the masses uh, in these these types of countries. We're talking about two and a half uh, two and a half billion people. So at the end of the day, it uh, very much is about uh, selling the product. And not having the United States in there, I mean, that's the wealthiest country in the world. Well, there's a couple things that spin off of this, and this is why I really wanted to have you on today, because um, let's start with soccer itself in the States. How Will this affect soccer in the States? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it will have, you know, there will be a seismic change in how the national team and the direction of the national team over the next four to eight years is going to be. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one is, they're, it looks like they're going to be hosting, along with uh, Canada and Mexico, the 2024 World Cup. And they certainly won't, won't want to be embarrassed. Uh, and second of all, they've invested, you know, a huge amount of money in MLS. And it is one of the most uh, up-and-coming professional sports franchises uh, in the United States. Uh, it's ba- and it's based on the fact that 
the product that they're producing for people to see is one of the best in the world. And not making it to the World Cup is uh, tantamount to failure uh, for that uh, narrative. Well, it certainly sends a conflicting message about it being one of the best places to play. If our if our guys, who many of them, most of them play in that league, can't beat Trinidad and Tobago, and I think, what, did they lose six in a row or something to go down the stretch to, to fall out of this? That, that That's not a great sales pitch for MLS, fair or not. That's not. Well, let's put it this way. I mean, the firing of uh, Jurgen Klinsmann in the middle of the run, you know, doesn't help. Uh, you know, what that does is changes changes the direction of what you've been doing for the last six or seven years. Uh, I think it caused confusion and division and, uh, within the camp uh, because Klinsmann had a lot, a lot of supporters and a lot of people who didn't like what he was doing. But if you're going to make those changes, you make them before you actually get started out on your World Cup journey. And uh, I'm not surprised that there was a lack of confidence within the dressing room that led to that uh, defeat in Trinidad. You and I have chatted on here before because um, you're, you've been very supportive and very enthusiastic about uh, Bob Young with the Ticats, the owner of the Ticats, has been behind trying to start up a pro league in this country. There would be a Canadian Pro League. You have been, as I say, very enthusiastic about that and and saying that this will help in a number of ways, but one of them will be Canada's international experience and Canada's international success has been slim in recent years. But if we give players a place to play, that it will get better, it will grow. Does it give you any... Do you begin to doubt any of those thoughts when you see that the United States has all these players who are able to play professionally in MLS and it's still doesn't work out for them. Do you doubt what you were thinking before about what would work for Canada? No, absolutely not. Because, you know, as we have spoken in the past about, you know, I was part of a generation that used to kick, you know, kick uh, United States butt every single time we played in the World Cup. And that was uh, in a generation where the North American Soccer League produced both Canadian and American uh, professional players for the national program. Yeah, I have always believed that... Uh, Traditionally, Canada produces better soccer players than the United States, and I still feel that way. The only reason why we have struggled over the last 20 to 25 years is the fact that we just didn't have a place for our Canadian players to develop. MLS has made it very clear that they don't want Canadian players to be considered to be domestic players in MLS for teams playing south of the border. Uh, they've done everything in their power to make sure that we don't uh, get to the levels that we were 30 years ago. So it's come around to the fact that we've had to do this on our own and we're probably a couple of weeks away from making it official. But uh, we have to have a Premier League in Canada and we're, you know, we're at the front door. So are you looking then at what happened to the States as a one-off that next time qualifying comes around that the states will then be in for the next five or six i mean they'll be in when they host but this was just a really bad stretch and that by and large the americans with their pro league will be in the world cup almost every time well they should be i agree with that for sure yeah well they should be but uh i think this was a wake-up call for the united states Uh, it was almost like you've been there so often that when you don't make it uh, you have to go back and try and figure out you know why the heck you know, uh, you know, did did we lose out in this opportunity? And I think there'll be uh, 
a real soul searching in what happened, you know, with the United States national program. I mean, don't forget, the MLS has been around for 20 years. I mean, they're producing, I think they have something like 26, 28 teams, 30 teams in the league. Uh, you've got an average of maybe about uh, 8 to 10 Americans per team. Uh, you've got tons of Americans playing in Europe. So I don't take away from the fact that, they're, you know, that they've got incredible talent and, and a great depth of talent. Uh, I do think that this is a one-off, and I think they will bounce back. But I think one of the things that they are dead scared of, and trust me on this one, they are terrified that Canada gets its act together. Because once Canada gets its act together, it starts, starts producing players that they did 30 years ago. Uh, we are the ones who they're going to be looking over the shoulders at, and it won't be Honduras or, or El Salvador. It will be Canada. Well, yeah, it sounds almost silly to say the states would be looking over their shoulder at El, El Salvador or Honduras. And I, I mean, look, they've, they've done well. They've, it just it shouldn't be that way. When you've got as many people and as much money in the system that these states do, they should never miss the World Cup. They really shouldn't. No, they shouldn't. I mean, it's uh, it's it's almost like Canada should never ever lose uh, World Cup hockey. Yeah, should never should never ever get anything less than a gold medal in the Olympics. We invented the game. Ninety percent of the best players in the world are Canadians. You know, we shouldn't, but you know what? We do sometimes. Yeah, and and sometimes uh, what happens is is that when you're the best in the world. Uh, you have to reevaluate when things don't go according to plan because the world changes. Here's the tricky part, though, uh, that affects both us and the Americans. I have to believe that with no American team in the World Cup, there are going to be fewer American eyeballs on the World Cup because they, lo- I mean, Americans love watching Americans. That's that's reality. And so, if there is no American team, there's a lot of people who would be in the casual soccer fan base that will just won't care. Correct. Oh, I think it will cost money. But don't forget, I mean, uh, the TV rights to uh, you know to the U.S. marketplace has already been sold. Yes, I mean, so and advertisers are usually uh, are usually uh, bought up and uh, paid for long before the World Cup takes place or whenever the teams qualify. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think it will be a problem problem for this World Cup, but there will be reluctance, I think. And there will be soul-searching on the fact of the casual American fan who will say, hey, I thought we were the you know, top 20 in the world. Uh, you know, I thought our league was the be- one of the best in the world. I thought we were producing players who were one of the, some of the best in the world. And that will put pressure on the USSF to come up with an explanation and a game plan for what they're going to do for the next four to eight years. But much of, I mean, we now have sports networks of our own and everything else. We're not exactly, uh, you know, backwater here in Canada by any stretch. But we do get a lot of our coverage, whether it's print, whether it's online, whether it's TV, from American feeds, from American sources. And if there's no American team, I have to believe that a bunch of the newspapers, a bunch of the magazines, a bunch of the online places are going to say, yeah, we're, you know what, we're not actually going to send as many people to Russia. There's going to be a lot less content, and that will spill over into Canada. I disagree. Okay. I think that the game has been so well uh, marketed worldwide, and I think a lot of it has to do with technology, that there are more kids today in Canada, in our hometown of Hamilton, who get up on Saturday morning and watch the EPL 
who will get up on a Sunday and watch Serie A. I mean, they have become fans of world football. And whenever you've got a situation when, let's say, we're, you know, Canada at the last Olympics, you know, didn't do very well. It was kind of an embarrassing situation. Uh, and uh, the World Track and Field Championships just this year, which was a huge disappointment. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that we've become fans of the world as opposed to our particular country. That it has not affected Canadians watching soccer on television, World Cup soccer, or any kind of soccer. And the fact that we don't have a professional league here, it's growing by leaps and bounds. Now, having a professional, having a, a World Cup team in the World Cup, what's that going to do for Canada? It's going to excite it like the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver did. It will give us an opportunity to be able to produce a product where some of the young kids are going to look at us and go, hey, I want to become a professional soccer player. The Premier League in Canada will do that as well. So we're excited here in Canada about what the next three or four years are going to be. The United States are terrified about what the next three hmm. or four years are going to be. That's the difference. We're on the up and they're on the down. Is this also, John, and this may be a, a strange thing, to, a strange time to bring this up, but is this right now a just an absolute goldmine for women's soccer in North America? Because we know the, the American women were fighting with... with um, with the governing body because they weren't being paid the same and weren't playing on, and you know, in Canada with the World Cup, the Women's World Cup, they weren't playing on natural grass. The fact that the men have failed to qualify, the fact that women are number one or number two in the world, I got to believe that the women, the Canadian and the U.S. women are quietly kind of loving this right now. Well, I think it can only make an analogy between watching the women's gold medal in the Olympics, ice hockey, and the men's. Uh, When we watched the women win the gold medal, it was exciting, it was great, but really the gold standard was the men. Uh, I agree that the women's professional soccer on the national team level have carried the flag for Canada for so many years. Uh, But in the big picture, women's soccer globally is very very small, but and your 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 point is a hundred percent correct. I agree with you absolutely. However, if we had tuned in to watch Canada versus the States in the women's gold medal hockey final at the Olympics, but somehow the men's final, Canada and the States had been knocked out, and it was Sweden against Finland, probably we would have paid a lot more attention and been much more emotionally engaged in the women's championship then. No, I don't agree with that. I, I think that we would have mourned the fact that Canada wasn't in the men's final and that the women's final would have been a, a poor consolation for us. I think winning the, winning the men's uh, Olympic final is, is the most important thing uh, during the Winter Olympics. Uh, and I think uh, the fact that Canada's women's team has done well on the international level, and God bless them for doing that. Uh, as I said to you before, uh, when you're talking about, as a soccer purist, watching a game for, because you want to watch the best players on the field, when you watch a women's World Cup game, it is the equivalent of watching an under-18 local boys team play. And that's what it is when it comes to the technical aspect. Because when the women are, are, are practicing for, let's say, a World Cup qualifying, a lot of the practice games behind closed doors are against local under-18 or under-19 boys teams. 
so when we talk about uh, the you know the the pure fact of the game you know uh, looking for the very very best uh, we uh, soccer people uh, will always want to to be able to watch the men's world cup and and the fact that you know that the women have been there and the men have been there i think yeah it's great at the moment but it doesn't have any effect of growing the sport in canada at all unfortunately Last thing before I let you go, if I am a shop owner who sells sports memorabilia, sports merchandise down in the States now, and I'm trying to gear up for the World Cup, what teams, which countries' jerseys am I going to want to stock up, stock up on? Which are the American fans who are watching soccer? Who are they going to be cheering for now? Is there, is there a natural fallback position for American fans? No, I mean, I've lived in the States for... For eight years, and I, you know, and I love Americans, but they're the most patriotic people in the world. I mean, that's why they're having an absolute meltdown about people kneeling during the national anthem. Up in Canada, we wouldn't give a damn, but down there, it's uh, it's absolutely sacrilegious, and uh, it's America first, America last. I mean, there's no substitution for American fan to to vote second, and uh, we in Canada for the last 200 years, we've had plenty of practice in the World Cup voting for other people because we're not there. But the Americans, no, they they, they won't uh, change their loyalty. They'll be, they'll be drowning in their beers. John McGrain, always love having you on. Thanks for the time tonight. Hey, it's my pleasure. You take care. That, thank you very much. That, look, John McGrain, uh, Hall of Famer, Olympian, former pro, um, I don't know, he's done everything else. He still works in the soccer business. He's helping... With the with this league, he's advising. I'm not sure what his role is, but it is um, it it is it is very interesting. It it was traumatic for a lot of people in the soccer world, especially in North America, especially south of the border. Last night, when the states lost, and and what it does, uh, John's right. It may not immediately have the kind of impact that you're worried about, but the rights for this had already been purchased for the World Cup in the states. And remember, it's the Americans always always pay more than anyone else for the Olympics, for the World Cup. The, the governing bodies of these places love the Americans because whoever gets it overpays. So whoever, I can't think it was Fox, anyway, has already got the rights. The money's already been paid. That's now, a, if not a disaster, it's certainly a bit of a splash of cold water. But what happens next time if you now look at it and you say, you know what, there's a chance the United States might not get in. I don't know if we want to pay the full shooting match if there's a chance that we're not going to get in. And it's going to affect ratings. This could affect the ratings now. It could affect FIFA. It could affect all kinds of things get affected by the fact that the Americans aren't in this. The one thing we hold out great hope for is that someday, someday, Before we all die, Canada participates in a World Cup. And let me add to that, because if we host, which it sounds like we're going to, we will get to participate. Not only do we hold out hope that before we die, Canada participates in a World Cup, but that we actually score a goal in a World Cup. Because in 1986, when we last played... If my memory serves, we ran the table through the round robin without scoring a single goal. 
that would be a refreshing change to have something that Canadian fans, Canadian soccer fans could not only see their team in the biggest tournament in the world, but have at least one moment to score and celebrate that. What would that do? What would that do for the continuing growth of soccer and interest in soccer in this country? Probably exactly what the Americans missing out on this is going to do to them for the next little while. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Today at Hamilton City Hall, a really remarkable story. I don't know if it got its exclamation mark, if, if you want to say it got the, the final chapter was written. I'm not sure how you would describe it. But it's a story about a guy named Earl McAllister. More specifically, Argyle and Sutherland Highlander Lance Sergeant Earl McAllister who over 70 years ago was supposed to be honored by the city for what happened with him, what he did in World War II. Hamilton guy who did just, as I say, remarkable things in the Second World War. And finally, and they have waited for years and years, finally, I mean, some stuff has happened for him in recent days, but today, again, it came in front of Hamilton City Council, and it was it was a lovely moment, apparently, when his sister, who is still living, I believe she's 97 or 98 now, was there in order to be able to receive this. Well, to explain and to tell Earl McAllister's story, Mark McNeil uh, from the Hamilton Spectator has written about him a number of times. Uh, he joins you now. Mark, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure, Scott. Let's, um, you know what, it's a story, so let's treat it as a story. Let's go right back to the beginning of the Mark McAllister, or the the Mark, the Earl McAllister story. Um, He was a Hamilton guy. Whereabouts was he from in Hamilton? Do we know much about his really, really early past? Well, he he grew up in Hamilton. He was 21 years old, uh, lived on uh, Wentworth Street, I believe, and uh, had a job in Dundas. Uh, but the thing everybody knew him for is he, he wasn't a very tall man. He was only five foot three, 135 pounds. <laughs> he used to call him Scotty and Mac. And he, he was—he uh, really wanted to be a, um, a soldier. He wanted to go overseas, and uh, he uh, so he signed up with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. And uh, his sister told me that the, uh, the the kilt was so big on him that he used to have to pull it up to his armpit so it didn't drag <laughs> on the floor. But he uh, was still uh, taken in, and he uh, was uh, quite a ferocious uh, fighter, and he uh, found himself in Europe in, uh, just after D-Day in, uh, in France um, in um, August uh, 1944. He was, he was there. Had he been part of D-Day? Had he been part of the... No, he wasn't. He, he was part of the um, contingent that came over after D-Day. Uh, so he finds himself in, in uh, fillets, um, if I'm pronouncing that right, in, in France, and he um, incredibly, in, one, in the course of one day, captured 160 Germans. And he, uh, he did this in three installments. He apparently went up to a, a group of them that were hiding in a ditch, and he fired his gun in the air. About 30 or 40 of them got out and uh, surrendered. Okay, let, let's hold on. Let me just interrupt to stop and do these one at a time because this is... Now, I am not... You're the guy. You've been over there. You were just recently over right. to many of these places over in Europe. Um, you know, I've done my... I've watched my history documentaries, my world Second World War documentaries, but I'm trying to imagine that you've got a bunch of 
Germans, a bunch of Nazis potentially, we don't know, but in a ditch. And why would they all just stand, were they all out, do we know, were they all out of ammunition? Like, why would they just suddenly give up if a guy just fired his gun over their head? Well, by that point in the war, they were they were losing, uh, and uh, some of them were probably uh, glad to uh, sort of throw in, in the towel. Uh, there was there was that thinking to some extent, but you know you have to bear in mind this is August '44. The, the war kept going until May the following year, so, mm-hmm. so they, they were fighting back. Um, so for whatever reason, they they uh, they decided to throw in the towel. Uh, maybe he might have. Uh, there was some suggestion that they were uh, they were hungry and they were looking for a meal and thought there was a better chance of getting it as a prisoner of war than it was uh, continuing to fight. Uh, he got actually seventy of them later by by uh, commandeering a armored vehicle, a German armored vehicle, and used that to bring them in. Uh, now it all sounds you know like like an urban myth. But at the time, this got incredible coverage. This was covered all well, over yeah. the world. Yeah. In the New York Times. It was in Time magazine. They did uh, a newsreel on it. There was, a, there was a, you know, when you go to the movies back then, they show these newsreels. They had an Earl McAllister uh, uh, newsreel. Of course, it was, in the, it was in the Spectator. They even had a cartoon. Can you imagine that? In the States, it was a, it was a huge thing in the States. Uh, they, they were almost more interested than they were in Canada. <laughs> like a comic book. Yeah, I saw, yeah, I saw some pictures book, of it. Yeah. Uh, on the guy. So it was, it was, it was a big deal. And um, so... Uh, do we have any he was, idea? Uh, he, was, he was well known at, at the time. Mark, do we have any idea how, and again, just to interrupt for a sec, but how do you, as a five foot three, 130 pound guy, commandeer a German armored vehicle single-handedly? Well, maybe he had a deep voice. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these are, it, voice. It, uh, it's clear that these things happen. It's just, they're, they're so yeah. uh, remarkable that you say, how in the world could they happen? I, I, I know. And the, uh, the newsreel actually shows the, uh, shows the uh, captured Germans. Too right with their with their hands up. And, so yeah, we have proof. Like it's not like we're making this no, up. It just seems crazy and, that uh, it could it, happen. Uh, he he just uh, he just said that uh, you know he fired a few warning shots and the, the first bunch gave in and then and then somehow this arm the, the fact that he had this armored car um, um, caused seventy of them to give up. <laughs> but he. Uh, that would certainly make you a legend, though. If you if you walk into you know wherever you bring yeah, prisoners you know, of war with seventy of them. That. And he got a promotion. Right? That's how he got made a lance sergeant after that. He, uh, and, and his uh, commanding officer was very impressed. Yeah, I would guess so. I would. I would certainly think so. Now he. Um, so he. He was he. He. Well, let me back up. He did not survive the war. It was not long after that, actually, that he was killed. Correct. A couple months later. Uh, so this is August. We're in October. Uh, and, and another incredible situation about him, but but but, but so sad in, in this case. He um, uh, one of his comrades, one fellow soldiers, uh, got wounded. He he went out to rescue him, and in the course of this, he gets shot and killed. A friend of his comes along, is actually holding him in his arms when he dies. Um, shortly before this, he had started to write a letter to his girlfriend. And hadn't finished it, uh, Earl McAllister had. And uh, he asked his, uh, his buddy to finish the letter. And uh, so that, that letter was eventually sent to the girlfriend. And, and actually it was published in The Spectator. The, the, uh, apparently this was common back then, um, not just The Spectator, for uh, newspapers to uh, publish letters um, from soldiers overseas to their family, you know, just to uh, um, you know, give a sense of what they were going through. 
So he uh, he he died at that point in time, and 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 some weeks after that, it, 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 he had been you know quite a legend in Hamilton uh, and a lot of sadness uh, about his passing, and they were going to have an Earl McAllister Day. There was there was actually a uh, city council at the time vote, uh, voted to do this, and uh, but it never happened. They uh, somehow forgot about it in the weeks uh, weeks that went by, months went by, years went by. So fast forward to 2017, he has a surviving sister, Joyce is her name, and uh, she's 97 years old and, and uh, came to think that this was one, la- one last thing that she would like to see done before she passes on. So some, uh, about three or four months ago, or maybe a bit longer ago than that, um, the family sent a letter to the city explaining the circumstances. Well, it's taken all this time, and uh, today... At city uh, city council, they, uh, the the mayor got up and gave them a, a plaque or some sort of uh, de- dedication in some uh, fashion. Now the family was ho- hoping for an Earl McAllister Day, but but apparently they don't do that anymore. They, well, they, one they of the don't yeah, have days for anybody. One of the comments that I read, I think it was probably something you wrote, was that uh, there were a lot of people from around here. How many people from Hamilton actually took part? Do we know how many people from Hamilton were in the Second World War? Uh, well, I can t- I can tell you that, that uh, about thirteen hundred of them died, uh, sixteen hundred somewhere in there, and uh, yeah, I think about ten thousand. So, uh, while he is certainly a legend and certainly a hero, and the things he did are remarkable, the comment, and again, I think you wrote this, was back then, especially, how do we decide? whose heroism was sufficient. I mean, if we, if they're all heroes and so how do you choose who you're going to really honor this way? But 70 something years later, his sister, I guess, good for her has been very persistent and is still thankfully with us and has pushed and pushed and pushed. And so this was done today. Do we know in the meantime, Mark, has anything, has he essentially been from the time that they were supposed to have Earl McAllister day until recently when she really, got pushing one more time. Has he essentially been forgotten? Because I had not ever well, heard his name. I, I had never heard the story either. This this came out of the blue as the uh, family was uh, mobilizing, uh, you know, their case about this. And they, they approached us uh, after they hadn't heard anything and it didn't seem to be going anywhere. But no, uh, Earl McAllister was not uh, something that we had uh, heard about. I, and, uh, you know, I tend to cover this these sorts of things and I'd never heard his name before. Uh, that always you know amazes me. You know, yeah. we we both had this experience uh, in Hamilton that the, the these incredible stories are, are out there like like this that uh, the people don't even know about. I I just don't understand how a guy who with these kind of things that he did how it falls into the mists as it were. It, it just seems like these are the kind of things that everybody would remember from the day he did it through the day he died and onward. It would become one of those legends. I just don't understand how they sort of fall away. Well, I think that's precisely the the sort of thing that was going through the mind of of, of the uh, of the family. Uh, they uh, said, "Well, why don't you name a park after him, or or some, something like that?" Because in in this case, that might have been uh, been been a reasonable thing to do, and 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 we would probably know his story if there was a street named after him or a park or or something like that, right? But as it is, there's there, there's nothing. Uh, well. Uh, one thing, uh, there was something else that came about too. There, there's a group called the uh, North Wall Riders Association. They're uh, motorcycle enthusiasts who, who um, uh, do things for veterans. They uh, tend to uh, raise money. And uh, there, there was a fellow, a uh, Dieppe veteran who lives out in Victoria, and they paid for him to come to the uh, uh, service uh, at least once. 
so they did these kinds of things. They they saw fit to put together a a plaque themselves for uh, McAllister family, and it is in a, a park on the East Mountain uh, called uh, Mountain Memorial Park. Mark, as you say, you've you've been over there a number of times to many of these places that were significant in the war. You've covered these stories. How many others like this are out there? And not, I don't mean exactly like this, but as far as, you know, I mean, how many Hamilton people, if we could go back and find the history, how many, there were a lot that probably went over and either died right away or there was nothing spectacular. I mean, heroes, yes, and brave, yes. But how many other stories like this would you guess are out there of people who did amazing, remarkable things that we've just lost? Yeah, there are uh, definitely all kinds of uh uh, stories like this, and uh, you know, we, we we hear about uh, like for instance, I, I wrote one a, a few weeks ago about a fellow in um, um, a Dieppe a veteran. He was a, a Dieppe, of course, was the uh, uh, failed attack uh, in 1942 that uh, that uh, killed almost a thousand Canadians, uh, 200 of them from Hamilton, and um, I guess there was about 1,500 that were prisoner of war. Among them, a fellow named Stan Darch, and he uh, he tried to swim to safety at some point in time and got rid of his boots, and uh, but still got captured. And so he ended up having to, to march uh, with a b- bunch of other prisoners of war some ten ten kilometers uh, to uh, this place where they were going to temporarily hold them before they put them on a train. He's uh, his feet are completely chewed up uh, from, from from the walk. And they get to this. Uh, they get to this town, and uh, there's a wedding that had just ended, and uh, of, 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 of French uh, people, people who live there, and the um, and the and the and the groom, not the groom, but the best man, gives uh, his shoes hmm. to Stan Tarch, and uh, which was quite a nice gesture. But but the Germans didn't think so. <laughs> they ended up throwing this guy in jail for a week. And actually, when I was over there, this sort of uh, update to that story uh, came into focus in the sense that the little town outside of Dieppe where this happened, they recently unveiled this plaque to this guy who came to be seen as, uh, you know, a bit of a hero of the fact that he would stick his neck out for this other person. And uh, so back in back in Canada, this story actually had, had got a lot of uh, coverage in, in a number of books and whatever, but, but they never knew who the guy was in France. So... Um, a daughter of Stan Darch happened to be uh, over there and um, kind of hooked up with the with the other part of the story at that point in time. You know, I really hope, and, and I'm glad you wrote this, I'm glad that his sister, uh, again, uh, talking about McAllister's sister, I'm glad she was persistent. But, I, you know, I hope when these things get brought to light and they get written about and they become known again that we have history teachers and stuff in schools who are reading these things or finding out about these things and including them because, you know, again, I, I read this and I was just fascinated. It's like, that is, that is just a remarkable story. And it's great to talk about history in the big picture and you have to, but when you hear these individual stories of people from around here and what they did, it just, it makes it so much more relatable. Yeah. And the other part of it, it becomes the fabric of the community because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being a Hamiltonian, Means that uh, you you sort of carry around these these stories almost like DNA and 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 they become part of of, of our identity in Hamilton that that, that he came uh, from, uh, that Earl McAllister came from here he did all these things and all these other stories you know Evelyn Dick or uh, 
Morago Perry, all, the, all these all these things kind of mix together and become the identity of, of Hamilton. And while Evelyn Dick and Rocco Perry are interesting people, uh, you would also love to believe that not everybody falls on that side of the law, and you could have the McAllisters the of the heroes. world, the heroes. Exactly. You know, you know, you're a character identified just by hoodlums. Exactly. Mark McNeil, uh, you can read his piece on the spec uh, today, thespec.com today. And in that story, if you're reading about this, uh, you can find the link to the previous story where you can have the longer version um, all about Earl McAllister. Mark, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure, Scott. The um, Let me just read something from the end of what Mark wrote in the original story, because he was talking about how when Earl McAllister died, he had been writing a letter back home to his girlfriend that he never was able to finish. Well, the letter was writing about the conditions that he was experiencing over there. And these are a quote from the, as, as Mark said, weirdly, because we would never do this now. We would never, if a soldier died today, I don't think we would ever publish as just a, a thing we did a letter. It kind of seems now almost ghoulish in a way or, or uneasy, but anyway, he wrote, the worst thing we have to contend with is the infernal darkness when we're on patrol and can't see our hand in front of our face, let alone where we're walking. Well, that was part of the letter. He didn't finish that letter and his, another soldier, Wilfred Day, was the one who ended up taking that letter, I guess, off McAllister's body and delivering it home, but writing on it a little more before he sent it. And he, what, this is what Wilfred Day wrote. This is a letter that McAllister started, but I am very sorry I must end it for him. Mac, my best friend and yours, was killed yesterday. So I'm writing this footnote to inform you Mac and I were always together. And as he died in my arms, he gave me all of his belongings and told me to send this on. He did not suffer. And let me assure you, he died a hero. He was a friend of all, and we will miss him more than anyone. You may wonder how he died. Well, one of his boys got hit. And as Mac went out to get him, he got it as he walked outside. Well, Lillian, I will close now as I have to write to my mum. Please pardon the blood. It could not have been helped. It's an unbelievable story about a Hamilton hero. Earl McAllister, go look it up if you haven't heard about him already. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.